Welcome to Worker Movement, a podcast dedicated to the working class, a podcast dedicated to raising class consciousness. This podcast is for you, for us, for the worker. The Derek Chauvin versus State of Minnesota trial concluded its second week of prosecution witnesses. This episode summarizes day 10, April 9th, in which the prosecution called two witnesses, both pathologists, to discuss the outcome of George Floyd's autopsy. Basically, like, we're going to get to this point where we find out that during the autopsy, there was nothing strange about his death besides that it was a homicide. There was, right, there was no abnormalities, there was no nothing, right? He just, he was killed. And the reason why this is important is because normally what happens during these, these type of cases is that they try to rely on some abnormality or some weird thing that happens. Oh, he had a, he had a splinter in his finger, and, and could that have caused him to get an infection? And could that infection have then led to him not being able to breathe? And what was the major point of, of this? I mean, the pathologist, Lindsay Thomas. I mean, it was basically like what? He ran out of fucking breath. He died from being murdered. Like, that's it. Everything points to the fact that, that he was murdered. So Lindsay Thomas is a pathologist, and she has actively been a medical examiner in Minnesota. She said she did over 5,000 autopsies during her direct examination. Uh, in just kind of her preamble to testimony, she stated that she's been a witness before. She's done it about 100 times. She's not being paid. She didn't ask to be paid, and the state reached out to her. So this is the standard, oh, well, how do we know that you're not just biased? And the state says this preemptively so that Nelson doesn't ask the question. And the, and the reason why this is important is that there is a conflict of interest if you're paying, like, a witness, right? And there is there is some professional reasons why you'd pay, like, a witness for, like, a malpractice thing or, like, a civil suit, right? Because you're taking someone else's time. But this is an actual homicide from the state to a citizen, and it's really important that there is no conflict of interest because this, the prosecution is attempting to actually win a case instead of just hide it. Yeah, the, the prosecution is very much trying to present actual information in the context of law is noble and just, let the jury decide whether guilt is a thing or not by being impartial and fair and following all the rules. So from the prosecution's perspective, they're asking this person who they deem to be an expert facts of the case, and she's not getting paid. So you can't draw the conclusion that, oh, well, the, the prosecution is trying to drive a narrative and they're paying this person a million dollars to just peddle what they want. Right. They're, they're an expert in the room, and, and because they got a million dollars, they're going to say whatever, whatever they want them to say. And that's not to say that when the prosecution or the defense does pay a witness that they're biased in any way, shape, or form. But it, it really does speak to, I think, more credibility when, when the witness is not paid or compensated. And there's different levels of compensation, too, where like this individual is from Minnesota. So having them travel to Minneapolis probably isn't this big onerous task. But if you live out of state, there's there's a clear time commitment to fly here. You have to get a hotel. Like So there, there's an incurred personal cost. So compensating a witness for stuff like that might be okay from a ethical... Yeah, I mean, I mean, from a professional point of view, the person has to give up the professional duties. You, you pay them for them to be there. This person's a medical examiner for the state, or at least multiple counties. And, and she's licensed in a bunch of states, too. 
She was eight eight Minnesota counties, so she's she's already tied in with the state. There's really no reason to pay her. She's already doing her job and due diligence. The prosecution basically just laid factual information about what did you look at? I looked at autopsies. Oh, by the way, I've done a lot of autopsies, so I'm qualified to talk about autopsies. Oh, here's a death certificate. Yeah, I've seen death certificates before. Let's talk about what the death certificate means. Oh, it says homicide. What does homicide mean? Oh, well, it's one of five choices that we have. Oh, well, homicide was chosen. That means that it's caused by the hands of another individual. Well, does that mean that it's a legal justification? No, it's purely a medical context, and it's mandated by the CDC to choose one of these five choices. So she's laying some of this baseline information about being a medical examiner that will come in later when the actual medical examiner that actually did the autopsy for George Floyd occurs. So they're using this witness to to lay I think just the framework or the groundwork to provide context to the jury for what they're going to see next. But at the same time, this person actually reviewed the autopsy of George Floyd and has opinions. Yep, absolutely. Her main point, like you already said, is that he died of asphyxia or low oxygen. She talked about reviewing some of the pictures in the autopsy and how nothing was visually wrong in terms of being able to observe low oxygen or asphyxia, but that's not uncommon. Uh, She talked about it was not a sudden death based on the video, which she did review. So in the video, she says stuff like, well, it wasn't a sudden death, so that rules out the fentanyl overdose. So she's providing context in the medical realm that also aligns with what Dr. Tobin said uh, a day earlier, and she's adding credibility to the medical case. And why, again, this is all important is that the prosecution is trying to preemptively strike out anything to say, like, it's a fentanyl overdose, or he was high in methamphetamines, or he had, it's not excited delirium, it's, it's, he wasn't able to breathe. And she actually hits on the nine minutes in this part, which is what they relied on a lot within this prosecution, which is that it was a very slow death. And this wasn't a, this wasn't like he was shot or he was hit by a car and just bled out or, or whatever it you know, was. His heart exploded from running or something, right? It, this is, he was tortured for nine minutes until he stopped breathing. He couldn't, his body could no longer fight back. She spent a good portion of her testimony talking about the concept of breathing and the bellows, which is this, which is this involuntary brain basically command to breathe have your diaphragm expand and contract, which causes your lungs to open and close and causes you to drop breaths. And she stated that based on the video, that basically stopped for nine minutes while Chauvin was knee on neck of George Floyd. And she tied this to the concept of the anoxic seizure, which is basically your brain saying, I don't have enough oxygen and I'm just kind of freaking out. And you can view this in the video. And Dr. Tobin talked about this and showed the videos of this as well. So it's just piling on that the medical evidence is not debatable. It is what it is. Many experts have the same opinion. She looked at the autopsy. She didn't perform the autopsy, but she looked at the the pictures. She looked at the reports that were written. And she said with a high degree of medical certainty that drug overdoses were not the cause. And I think that's what the prosecution wanted out of this witness. It's exactly what they wanted out of this witness. It was another nail in the coffin of no drug overdose. Because what the state would normally do if a cop kills somebody is they would do it the other way where they would try to find as many ways to say it wasn't the cop's fault excited delirium he's a drug addict right the officer feared for his life the medical examiner normally defends the police and this time they're defend they're not they're they're actually prosecuting she was very clear to state that the medical examiner's job is to fill out the death certificate like that is why they exist there's three fields it's the cause of death contributing factors to the death and there's an underlying cause of death everything else gets filled out by somebody else. Date of birth, marital status, residence, 
it's totally irrelevant. All the medical examiner's job is, is to determine what the cause of death was based on those three fields and to choose one of the five categories, in this case, homicide. And she was very clear to reiterate that in an autopsy, there is no test for low oxygen. The, the autopsy photos were distributed to the court and then they were drawn back. So the public never got to see the autopsy photos, but the, the jurors did. She basically closed the direct examination by saying that there's no evidence that he would have died other than for Chauvin's knee and the, the intervention of the police, which is exactly what the death certificate says. Which is like really hard to defend because it's like he was otherwise healthy enough not to have died that day. Her last statement during the direct examination was about a study and whether the prone position was safe. And uh, she basically states that it's safe, but not in the context of the police intervention. And then she cites a Canadian study that says the prone position was safe. And that was another preemptive uh, effort by the prosecution to mitigate the defense's ability to effectively raise the Canadian study. Which is actually a pretty good four-dimensional chess. Yes, it was very purposeful and very good for these, these two medical witnesses. So during the cross-examination, Nelson is very quick to point out that, ah, yes, so George Floyd's heart was enlarged, and she agrees. That's about all the defense can really hope to gain is to say, well, he was a ticking time bomb because his heart was enlarged. His heart was enlarged for some reason. He was the Grinch, right? Like, again, they have nothing. It's all straws. And then Nelson raises this Canadian study, which is interesting. It studied 3,000 people who were under prone position by law enforcement, and they determined that nobody died. And the witness made a very incredulous statement about isn't that amazing? And it was just funny because she's sitting there going like, I'm on the stand and you're trying to argue that the prone position is fine. And you cited this study from Canada that aggregated cops using the prone position and nobody died. But yet I'm in a trial of a cop when somebody died. Very curious. In prone position. Yeah. Interesting. Isn't that amazing? When you consider that virtually every forensic pathologist in the United States has probably had an officer-involved death like this. How did they, it utterly baffles me, which is why I kept saying Canada, because I think, I don't know what's different, but... I'm going to object that, this time that, is not responsive. It did not go well for this Canadian study thing. No, again, they thought that they was like, oh, well, look it, nobody died. The, the prone position can't kill anybody. It's like, well... The prone position to kill anybody because there's no one kneeling on their neck. Like, you shouldn't have brought this study up. You fucked up because you think about it in the context of a system. Uh, in Canada, they probably aren't allowed to kneel on necks. I mean, yeah, that's that's what I got out of that. Uh, she went on to talk a little bit more about some of the medicine. She stated that it wasn't a sudden hypoxic event. Where Nelson was trying to argue that this was a sudden event and it was unforeseeable and the cops just happened to be there at the time of this sudden event. And that's what they always use. They always use that, right? He had excited delirium and died. It was fatal. It was instantaneously fatal. Yeah, he got an adrenaline boost, and then his heart just couldn't handle the adrenaline you know, boost, and boom, done. Which then raises the question, why do cops make people so nervous that their adrenaline increases? Yes, is the cause of death in that scenario cop because they caused your adrenaline to increase? Uh, at this point, Nelson just went into this weird hypothetical. He raised the rectal drug use question again, which has no fucking bearing and it's just a trope. I just love the idea of people getting high by sticking shit in their buttholes. Like that, where are you at in your defense if that's what you're getting to? Like you are really, <laughs> really low there. And it's not like this is the first time he brought it up. And there is no evidence of this being a thing. Like I... 
I'm gonna say this. I've never met anybody who was like, "Hey, you wanna you wanna stick shit in our butts and get high." I mean, never. As much as I am now into it, I don't think that someone walking into a store had been like, "Hold on, I gotta stick up my ass real quick." I'm gonna go buy something, then I'll kind of come out and wash my hands. My life is just not exciting enough. When I buy cigarettes, I need to do this other thing before that. I need to stick this in my ass before I go into a store. I'll be right back. What the fuck? I mean, that's that's what he's saying. That's the fucking question. The George Floyd, before he got out of the car, stick something in his asshole so that he can go fucking get cigarettes. Like that doesn't even make any fucking sense. It doesn't even make any fucking sense from someone wanting to get high. Because why would you do that in public? Why the fuck would you want to get that high and drive around? You go home to get high. I don't get it. You are absolutely right that if this is your best fucking defense, you are absolutely fucked. It's just over with. You're just, you're just, basically, you're just there to make it look like the cops actually care about Chauvin. So at this point, Nelson went down just this weird line of questioning. He asked whether saline that the EMTs potentially infused into Floyd's body to try and revive him could have potentially diluted this drug sampling. And the witness was like, oh, well, it's theoretically possible. So she knew what was up and she didn't really play along with this bullshit line of questioning. Nelson really wanted to talk about norfentanyl and how the presence of norfentanyl must be evidence of an overdose. And she was basically like, we don't know anything about when the norfentanyl was metabolized, so it's meaningless. And Nelson just kept reading medical questions from a notepad, butchering the pronunciation, and he didn't really understand the context. So the whole trope about how, well, he's just a lowly lawyer just supporting this one innocent little cop is very clearly just total bullshit because he has an army of people helping him, and he's just the actor every day in court because he has no context or capability to come up with some of these questions are, and he can't even pronounce the words. So how are you going to write down a word that you can't pronounce? With, without someone helping him, what was he going to do? Like, like search on, like, Reddit? Like, things that don't What questions should sudden, I ask? Yeah, like, ask, like, ask, hey, I, I'm a, on the defense of the Derek Chauvin trial, AMA. So I was like, what do you need help with? He's like, I need a bunch of questions for tomorrow. Who's got them for me? And everybody that identified the Boston bomber was willing and ready to help. Yeah. And his big win of this witness came when she stated that absence other realities of the situation, like the video, she might have considered this a drug overdose. And then he went and sat down and patted himself on the back. And, th- and that's where having police video is really important because you just saw it right there. The medical examiner gets to say it was a drug overdose no matter what it is. Yes, if the video did not exist, this is a drug overdose. So during the redirect, uh, Jerry Blackwell was the one uh, doing the redirect. I like that guy. Yeah, he's awesome. His initial question was, Dr. Thomas, a few things I'd like to try to clarify with you. Thank you. Uh, You were asked a number of questions that were to the effect that if we take the police subdual restraint and neck compression out of this, what would you conclude... Mr. Floyd's cause of death to Ben. Remember those questions? Oh, yes. Uh, Aren't those questions a lot like asking Mrs. Lincoln, if we take John John Wilkes Booth out of this, uh, may I finish? It's my analogy. Dr. Thomas, uh, if we put the police of dual compression and neck uh, compression into this, restraint uh, and neck compression into this, what was the cause, the manner of death for Mr. George Floyd? The cause of death was the law enforcement 
So dual restraint and compression and the manner of death is homicide. Does it make any sense to you whatsoever from the standpoint of trying to assess cause and manner of death for Mr. Floyd to be answering questions having to do with hypothetically taking the facts of this case out relating to his subdual restraint and neck compression? She's a, you, can, you can finish the question. Uh, Dr. Uh, Thomas, from your standpoint as a forensic pathologist and your analysis of manner and cause of death, uh, would you ever approach an assessment of manner and cause of death by taking out of it the facts that you found relevant and highly pertinent to assessing and determining the manner and cause of death? No. After Blackwell gets absolutely uh, shot down for his Mrs. Lincoln questions, he moves on to basically reiterating that there's no evidence of a fentanyl overdose, there's no evidence of heart or scars on the heart, there's no medical evidence that would establish that anything killed George Floyd beyond a knee to the neck. Uh, he goes back to the prone study from Canada, and uh, he basically just reiterates what her incoherent ramblings were before she got told to stop talking, and says. Yeah, so in the U.S., it's completely different, right? And she goes, yeah, that's what I don't understand. This isn't a U.S. study. Huh, I wonder what's different. Uh, last question of redirect is about air reserve, and she defers to a pulmonologist, which is basically saying, like, I only deal with dead people, and somebody who is an actual doctor, like Dr. Tobin, would be the expert on this. So it's attempting to build credibility for Dr. Tobin. Was she a natural doctor, though? She's an actual doctor, and she focuses in pathology, but pathology is the study of dead people. So she doesn't really have experience in the presentation of symptoms in anybody that's alive. Exactly. So, But she's good at determining how someone died because as a pathologist or the pathways, yep. right, she can determine the path that led to this person dying. Correct. So she's really good at determining how someone dies. Yep. And she has, a, she has full medical training. She just doesn't deal with patients that are alive. No, it's it's no it's no different than a radiologist who only looks at radiology like pictures Correct. all day long. Like they're not going to do anything else. It's they're not an oncologist. You're not going to say go to this guy to, or girl to treat cancer because they don't do that. They take pictures of the cancer and say, well, you got fucking cancer. Go see a fucking oncologist. It's in your lungs. Go see an oncologist and a pulmonologist. I'm sure they have to work together. Uh, the recross was then very brief and kind of incoherent. Where Nelson was attempting to ask, even if the brain was dead, could the body continue to breathe? And the witness is like, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's not how any of this works. And she didn't really understand the question. And Nelson just kind of got bored and moved on. Because he didn't understand the question. Correct. Either. He was reading from his notepad and did not know what to ask and didn't know how to reframe it. He then asked her about, well, what is the safe level of meth? And she was basically like, there is no safe level of meth. So she keeps, Nelson keeps saying, well, what about meth? And every doctor along the way is like, who gives a shit? It's some negligible amount, and he was a fucking, basically, drug user. So this isn't going to affect him in any way, shape, or form. It's not like he's a 12-year-old kid who just fucking found some methamphetamine and did a fucking rail up his face. Yeah, he's he's probably taken meth before. This is not his first time. And that's well-established on previous day's testimony. So he concludes by asking her if she would subscribe meth to somebody with a 90% artery blockage, which, from the autopsy, we determined that one of his main heart arteries had a 90% blockage. And he wants to conclude by putting that back in the jury's mind that, well, his artery was blocked 90%. Uh, and she responds with, I'm not qualified. Basically, I don't dispense drugs to living people, like at all. I, I couldn't I couldn't tell you I'm not qualified. 
she's done 5,000 autopsies. I want you to think about that in the context of time. There's about 250 working days in a year, right? 52 weeks a year times five days, about 250 working days. You want to take vacation. You have family, you have friends, whatever it is. So they do one autopsy a day, 5,000 autopsies, or at least being present or near them, is 20 years of work. This one autopsy a day. I don't know how long an autopsy is. I mean, I've seen TV shows and autopsies are like eight minutes long. But I'm guessing like by the time you take the pictures and cut something open and do all your notes, it's probably not a very quick process. I, I can't imagine how long it would take to dissect a body. Yeah, it's not a drive-through operation. It takes hours. Maybe you can do two in a day if yeah. you're really busy. I, I have no idea. But it, it's not like you're doing 30 of these a day. Yeah, and I'm sure like if it's if it's busy enough, you have a helper. But still, 5,000 is a lot. So even if you do two a day, it's still 10 years of, of experience. She has looked at a lot of dead people, and she has, for no other reason than her medical training, she has looked at so many dead bodies that she just knows trauma when she sees it. If you've seen the show Dexter, it's interesting because, like, he knew, like, blood splatter because he was a serial killer, but also because, you know, spoiler alert, he uh, studied it. So he could look at a blood pattern and be like, oh, this is what happened because I've looked at so many blood patterns in my lifetime that I know how it's going to happen. It's it's like an auto mechanic or a body guy, right? They walk in and say, I know how to pull that dent out. Here's where the crease is going to be. Here's how you're going to fix it. Like, if you do it long enough, it's just, it's just rote memorization. Even though she didn't actually do the autopsy of George Floyd, the pictures were all provided, the reports were all provided. She knows what the vernacular is. She has seen so many of these that she has enough information to make all these conclusions. His body, from a world of bodies perspective, is no different than any of the other 5,000 autopsies she's been around. Yep, he's maybe slightly taller, slightly shorter, thinner, fatter, doesn't matter. It's a human. They all have hearts, right? The next witness was Andrew Baker, and he is the Hennepin County Medical Examiner, and he is the individual that actually did the autopsy of George Floyd. He has been the medical examiner since 2004, where previously he was the assistant. He also has done a shit ton of autopsies in his 20-year time stint. He laid some of the foundation about what information he knew and when he knew it and what he did during the autopsy. And to some extent, this was actually kind of interesting because I haven't dealt with a lot of autopsies in my day, which I'm sure is shocking and surprising to our listener audience. Uh, He did not watch the video of George Floyd being choked up before he did the autopsy because he didn't want to bias his examination. He did eventually watch it later. And that's a theme that will probably come back because his testimony was very much when did you know it and what did you know? During the autopsy, he performed some additional steps that were above and beyond what would typically be done in an autopsy. For example, he dissected the back and neck area looking for bruises, and that was because he came to understand that there was pressure applied to the neck and there might be underlying bruises that were observable that might explain the cause of death. He didn't identify anything. Part of his intent of doing an autopsy is to document things. So he's cutting apart this individual and taking pictures and making notes. His idea is to allow others to analyze his work and come to a conclusion. He said, that was certainly my goal. So he's doing this autopsy under the context of other people are going to review what I'm doing. So I need to do a thorough job so that the evidence is preserved and presentable to others. So he had this knowledge at the time of the autopsy that this case was going to be a big deal. And I'm sure this is not the only autopsy he's ever done where it was going to be used in a murder trial. So this wasn't his first time. He's been doing this for 20 years in a major metropolitan county. 
One other thing that was interesting that was a little bit more medical was the tube was still in George Floyd's throat. And they I found that interesting. They too. leave it there yeah. because it's a quality control for the medical personnel that place the tubes. The medical examiner is literally evaluating how well the actual doctors did at inserting a chest tube. And why is that important? If they don't intubate somebody correctly and you puncture the lungs or rip open the body somewhere and the person dies, there's evidence here that it's done wrong and you can say, hey, go back to training. Beyond the homicide, there's a reason why you would do this. And it, it's both from a civil liability perspective and from a training perspective where you want to improve outcomes. And it's through the entire bureaucratic cycle from in the hospital to the autopsy, you're evaluating medical care and trying to improve it. Andrew Baker stated that he analyzed the contents of the stomach. There were no undigested pills because pills were a big topic of focus where, oh, well, there was a pill found in the back of the cop car, which means he must have been smashing his mouth with pills. Well, based on the stomach, he wasn't. Well, that pill is already there probably from the other time Chauvin arrested somebody and planted it. The cops were planting drug evidence, even though the seals were protected. Mm -hmm. Uh, The contents of the stomach were not forensically analyzed. Another thing that was interesting about George Floyd was that he had the sickle cell trait. And this is not really related to anything, but from a science perspective, it's, it's interesting. The medical examiner stated that he determined this because formaldehyde reacts with the single cell trait. And he had to basically determine why when he put this, I don't remember which organ it was, in a jar and it had like a weird reaction. Why did that happen? He knew that the sickle cell trait had this characteristic, so he went and got a blood smear from Hennepin County Medical Center to confirm, and it turns out he had the sickle cell trait. And this is different from sickle cell disease. He simply had the trait. So he didn't have any of the negative consequences associated with having basically deformed cells that have weird blood-related consequences. Right. It's it's a malaria byproduct, right? I think if you have sickle cell, you are immune to malaria. Yes. Evolution can be weird sometimes. And this is one where you don't want your red blood cells looking like a, a kidney, I think. Yeah, they're kind of deformed. And so George Floyd didn't have this was the point, but he noticed it during the autopsy and denoted it and explained why it didn't matter. Because again, going through, through pathology, what was the most likely method of death for this person? And that's on the legal form that was presented to the jury. And the witness went through and said, that blown up section of text is in fact where I wrote homicide because I believed it to be a homicide. Knowing all the evidence that we have, what can I rule out? What can I not rule out, right? I can rule out overdose. I can rule out this, rule out that. I can't rule out homicide. It's a homicide. Right. And this witness and the previous witness talked a lot about how an autopsy can tell you what it isn't. It sometimes can't tell you yes. what it is. So there there might not be evidence that George Floyd died because of his low oxygen to his brain. But you can tell based on the autopsy that his heart didn't explode. So therefore, yep. he didn't have a massive heart attack. So it's like it's almost like a diagnosis of, of last resort, or yep. right? Which is I I have excluded every single thing that it could be. That leads me to believe it has to be homicide, and that's technically what they do, right? I mean, unless unless of course you have like a gaping wound in your neck or something, which with a knife sticking out of it, right? I mean, even then, could you have fallen on a knife and cut your own neck? Yes, you probably could have. Right? So you still have to rule out accidents like that. And one of the classic examples of this is I'm driving and I have a massive heart attack and I drive off a bridge and my car explodes. What was the cause of that? It wasn't the bridge. A medical examiner doesn't necessarily know based on the charred remains of your body that you have a heart attack. 
but you did die in a car accident, so the car accident was the cause. But maybe you can also tell based on the autopsy that your heart did explode, and that doesn't imply that the car accident and the fire explosion was your cause of death. So science allows you to make conclusions. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a reason why there's there's like assays, right? I'm guessing someone found out they have a heart attack. There's probably things in your blood that you get, like a protein or something wild, that spiked because you had a heart attack. Yep. And so you can test that. And then same thing, so you, you're charged, you're they're going to try to find blood, and they're going to test the blood for everything they can. Oh, there was these raised levels here. They must have had a heart attack before they caught on fire. Exactly. Uh, and this entire line of questioning about the cause of death is relevant depending on what the jury instruction is. So the prosecution is attempting to argue that in order to determine guilt, you don't have to prove that Chauvin's intent was to cause harm, merely that his actions caused harm. And this, this is commonly referred to as the but-for. So but-for Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck, he would have survived. So therefore, Chauvin is culpable. Yep. That's really what the prosecution is trying to establish here. And they're doing it in a passive way, just to say, look, the cause of death is this, and the death certificate says force exerted by police officers, or whatever the exact phrasing is. The direct examination for this witness was relatively short, and that was because the cross examination was intended to be this big, elaborate fireworks. <laughs> I remember the buildup. This was so stupid. Of the media just getting super excited about how, oh, well, this witness, man, they're going to they're gonna have a hard time under cross, and, you know, what are we going to see? And this is probably going to be the key witness. And, spoiler alert, nothing happened. Nothing happened, and not only did nothing happen, it happened in such a way that you actually you felt sad for CNN at this point in time. Because <laughs> their big witness on a Friday was just nothing. It was nothing. It was like just a gong show. There was nothing happening. The quick highlights are Nelson wanted to start and talk about how there's the autopsy and there's after the autopsy. During the autopsy, really the only thing of consequence that was raised during the cross-examination was that George Floyd had an enlarged heart enlarged heart in kind of air quotes because it's not a definitive thing. It's a statistical model depending on what model you chose. So George Floyd's heart rate 540 grams, and this is outside the standard range of 510 to 521, depending on which criteria you use. The witness stated they used this one criteria and were familiar with that criteria. So based on that criteria, he had a slightly enlarged heart. Okay, fine. Nelson attempted to then talk about the heart being the cause of death, and he went over some of the electrical system characteristics of the heart. Uh, he fucked up the pronunciations. Which he had no idea what he was talking about. It kind of fizzled out. The witness demonstrated enough medical knowledge, and Nelson kind of was like, well, I know I'm asking you these questions, even though you're not really like a heart doctor, so I'm just going to kind of leave it here. And then the witness also just said, "I this isn't my expertise. I, I don't. This is somebody else's thing to deal with and nelson does this a lot nelson doesn't seem to comprehend that like in medical school you get the general knowledge and then you get a specialty so if your specialty is going to be medical examiner you're a general practitioner and then you learn the tools of the trade which is how to perform an autopsy if you're going to be a pulmonologist you spend two to three more years understanding pulmonology it's it's what this is like it's it's a specialty like you can't know everything and he's asking basic medical questions that pretty much everybody knows and he's sort of surprised that these people are expressing an opinion about them but it's like these are just basic questions that they just know like, yes there are four chambers in the heart congratulations these people went to medical school and have literally cut open hearts and can literally count the number of chambers in the heart 
I mean, I know there's four chambers in the heart. I know there's 36 chambers in the Wu-Tang. It's not that hard. There was more discussion about the autopsy and what the heart revealed. There wasn't a picture taken of the outside of the heart because it was normal and disinteresting. And apparently that's part of autopsy procedures. You don't document stuff that looks normal because it just adds clutter to the case file effectively. Well, it's, it would be hard for any any person that understands autopsies to go through and look at a bunch of normal pictures and be like, I don't know what I'm looking at. Well, oh, you, you took a picture of the heart that's very interesting. What did you see here? What did you see? Oh, it looks like there's a freckle. That's fucking weird. But there's nothing else. It's the same thing as like an auto body place. Like like you 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 come in because you got a dent in your door. The person doesn't walk around and take pictures of like your back seat and be like, hey, look at how cool like the back seat looks. What the fuck does this matter? Like the insurance company's like, there's something wrong with the back seat because you, you're asking for change. You're not asking for what's good. There was some discussion about the bleeding or the lack thereof in the neck and back after dissection, and the witness was very good at saying, like I said, or as I previously discussed, and he knew I think what this was gonna be and kind of played into the antagonism of the moment. He said lines like, you know, that question isn't quite clear, counselor. He's done testimony before and he wasn't flustered. And I wonder to some extent whether he was trolling Nelson a little bit with some of this questioning. Well, when Nelson can't pronounce words, and I don't even have an example of it, but like, you know, when you're just mispronouncing Latin words that probably third graders could pronounce just by reading it, it makes for easy slaps. Why wouldn't you be able to slap back a little bit if you can't say the word? After Nelson... And Baker got a little bit antagonistic. Nelson tried to wrap it back around to just generic questioning to, I think, defer some of the hard questioning in front of the jury to get to get Andrew Baker back on the non-agitated trolling line of questioning. So he generally talked about what he do as an autopsy medical examiner or conductor. He said he's done 2,900 to 3,000 autopsies, which is less than the previous witness, but still a shit ton of autopsies. That's still a shit ton of autopsies, dude. It's a lot of autopsies. Again, that's 10 years of autopsies. Uh, he stated that asphyxia autopsies are very common in his line of work. Asked him about the specifics of asphyxia and the situation, and Baker was basically like, well, I mean, I looked at the video and the knees compressing the neck, and yeah. Oh, and by the way, I was just looking at the video, and I have no special expertise looking at a video. So he was back on the antagonism <laughs> responses, yeah. like, very shortly oh, after the initial one. Like, I mean, I watched the fucking video, and, I mean, he's on the neck, so I like, what do you want from him? Like, any, anybody looking at the video can see his knee is on his neck. Yes. And just to be clear, I don't have any expertise. I just have eyes. Yeah. I haven't. I haven't went through four years of film school. Right. I am not a film producer, director, editor, whatever. I'm, I'm a medical examiner with a lot of experience. So Nelson raised the idea that Chauvin's knee was on George Floyd's neck and that should have impacted the carotid artery. And Baker was like, well, visually, based on the video, Chauvin's knee is on his neck, but it doesn't appear that his knee is on his carotid artery. But even if it was, the other carotid artery, because you have two in your neck, would have made up for it. Would have compensated yeah. for it because it's a pressure imbalance. So essentially what you're saying is, is that because the system is open, you have two pipes basically flowing into the brain. You pinch one pipe or the hose... It's basically a hose, right, with the with the peristaltic pump. So it's a more of a constant volume flow than it is a constant pressure flow, but it's still a peristaltic pump. As soon as you close off the one side, the flow will be made up on the other side, so he still can get blood to his brain. As long as he can maintain oxygenated blood, 
flowing to his brain. Exactly. And so Nelson is attempting to basically say, well, Chauvin wasn't choking out his carotid, so therefore he should have been fine. And Baker effectively agreed with that for the reasons you just stated. Yes, the carotid was not blocked, and he did not die because the carotid artery was blocked by the knee. What? Fuck. Nelson is such a fucking piece of shit. I don't even know. I mean, I understand you want a fair trial, but I mean, like, anybody else would have been railroaded by now. And Nelson doesn't know what the fuck's going on. He's like he's like a lost puppy. He is just a guy reading notes with not a lot of medical context. And it shows. He has no idea. It shows, yeah. The best he could do is get a drunk driver off and still get get her to go to prison. So She only got like six years, too. Yeah, Fuck no. Fuck that. Yeah. Uh, Nelson then went down some more questioning about, well, what what is common in asphyxia cases? And basically, in most asphyxias, you have pressure to the front of the neck so you can observe bruising. Like maybe a hand is choking the front of your neck. Like a choke. It's it's pretty rare that the back of the neck is causing asphyxia. So this is a perhaps non-standard asphyxia case. Strangulation most often occurs in the collapsed throat area. And then Nelson wanted to ask a bunch of questions about like, well, how does this happen in a real person? And the witness is just like, oh, I don't treat living people. So <laughs> it's so back it to just the troll. goes right back to the troll of, yeah, so I deal with dead people, um, not living people. And in this instance, George Floyd was, was in fact dead. I literally would not have seen his body if he wasn't dead. Correct. Discussion then turned to fentanyl because Nelson is just throwing anything at the wall that'll stick. Uh, Baker declares that he has declared cause of death in fentanyl for as low as three nanograms per milliliter, which is lower than what George Floyd's was. But he stated that it's necessary to take into account tolerance. And George Floyd was tolerant because he was literally addicted to opioids, of which fentanyl is one. So he has a higher tolerance. There was apparently a pulmonary edema, which is a blood clot in the lung can sometimes be fatal but baker determined that this was likely caused by cpr during ems so actually bruising during the time of being treated yep uh stuff is breaking off from your arteries and basically going into your lungs you're just mashing on the chest trying to get any sort of heart rhythm then this is when the the testimony got spicy if you're cnn this is where the big to do came so the defense attempts to get Baker to impeach himself, which is a fancy legal term for state something that discredits his own testimony. During and around the initial death of George Floyd, he allegedly made a statement to some of the county attorneys. Do you recall telling the county attorney's office that had you found Mr. Floyd under different circumstances, uh, you would have determined this to be a fentanyl overdose? So I don't recall specifically what I told the county attorney, but it almost certainly went something like this. Had Mr. Floyd been home alone in his locked residence with no evidence of trauma, and the only autopsy finding was that fentanyl level, then yes, I would certify his death as due to fentanyl toxicity. Again, interpretation of drug concentrations is very context dependent. And Nelson is just so pleased with himself. But at the same time, the witness very clearly understood this question was going to be asked and had a ready-made response that was super innocuous. Then apparently Baker was under testimony two times. One was with the BCA and I believe other attorneys were present. And this was shortly after the incident occurred. And he's being asked all sorts of questions. And he basically doesn't remember what the exact specific answers he made are. So he says, I don't know. We can pull out the transcript. And he just basically asserts that, like, I'm not going to testify about any of this shit. You want to know what I said? Pull out the transcript. Read the read the transcript because they're, they're attempting to trap him in a way that he's not stupid. The prosecution then complains that they didn't lay foundation and the judge agrees. So they have to go back to a line of questioning about 
Why were you giving testimony? What was the circumstances? So basically, the defense was just like pivoted to a non sequitur type of sentence and statements. And nobody, in, nobody, even if you were trying to get the jury to believe it, would have no idea what you're talking about. Yes, they, there was no context for the line of questioning. And that needed to be established for us before you could ask these questions. This created this really weird situation where the witness is literally like, I'm just going to read my transcript. And does. Straight faced. And he does. And this is not how it's supposed to work at all. The defense attorney is supposed to say, would it help your recollection if you refer to the transcript? The witness says yes. The witness is presented with the transcript, reads it, understands what it says, hands the transcript back, and then gets asked for the questions about what the transcript is. And normally it is limited the transcript only to the section in which they have to recollect on because that's a lot of questioning. It's not just, here's your transcript. Correct. And so the, the witness handled this like about as well as I think he could have by literally just circumventing this thing. Going, I'm going to go ahead and just read the line of questioning you want me to read because I don't give a shit and I'm just going to read what I said. Effectively, the moral of the story is that he was asked a series of hypotheticals under oath and he answered medically, not legally. Nelson was trying to conflate the two. So Baker would get asked questions, but for, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but for Chauvin's knee, would he have died? So he's going to ask hypotheticals like this, and he's responding in the medical context. Yes, but for. For, which is not the same as a legal context of culpability and intent in that entire legal construct. And Nelson's attempting to conflate them and trying to get Baker to conflate them perhaps unintentionally while actually testifying but he's just reading his transcript so it just doesn't play out i think nelson would have had a better shot if he would have went the other way which is pull the hypotheticals and then said well wait a minute yeah you you said this to the bca like how would you have ruled this if he died at home right how would you have ruled this if you just found him in the car just the hypotheticals and then if you changed from that medical point of view then he would have been well wait a minute during the bca testimony you said he would have done this so in your medical opinion which one is it right and that's how you really chip up an expert exactly but nelson didn't do that no he fucked this up hard he fought i mean this is actually if it was done the right way may have been what cnn wanted it to be right which would have been some testimony that was a little dicey because and from points of view outside of this is he testified two months ago before he knew all the scenarios. He didn't even probably see all the videos. He didn't know everything. He was just answering questions, you know, whatever it was. I mean, it's, it's kind of a, it's, a, it's amazing the amount of information you learn, though, as this goes on. Right. The key point of the testimony here is that Baker phrases it as the knee of the neck was a tipping point that led to George Floyd's heart to fail. And the defense is trying to frame that as, well, his heart was frail, so it couldn't have been the knee because it, it was a justified use of force, so it's fine. But George Floyd died because his heart was bad. Right. If, if, he, if George Floyd would have just listened, the old tropes that the shit lives and the right wing say, if he would have just listened, the knee would have never been on his neck and he would never have died. Correct. And Baker follows this up by saying, this meeting with the BCA and the U.S. attorneys was so chaotic that I actually wrote a follow-up letter just reiterating what I said, which is... This was a medical opinion, not a legal opinion. And then this is perhaps the most interesting part of the whole testimony is that there was apparently another under oath testimony, like you said, that happened two months ago, which is actually a federal grand jury. So there is a federal grand jury investigating Chauvin that Baker is testifying in. And Nelson is again trying to trip him up and get him to state stuff that he said that might contradict what he said previously. Nelson is asking questions like, well, did you defer to a pulmonologist or did you defer to a cardiologist? And Baker's like, I'm sure I did. We can look. 
I got asked a lot of questions about stuff and I just said you'd have to talk to X doctor in whatever the field is because I'm a pathologist. And I think Baker pretty much won this exchange. I think he won the whole testimony basically. Nothing of consequence was really chipped away at the medical evidence, which is he died of low oxygen. That's what I think it's only three doctors so far, but every doctor has been on the same messaging. He died from a knee to the neck that basically prevented him from breathing. Correct. And getting blood correctly to his brain. Like, it's crazy. And the redirect was super straightforward. It was very short. What was the cause of death? Same as the death certificate. Were fentanyl and meth direct causes? No. Would you classify this as a homicide? Yes, it's a homicide. Thank you for your time. Everybody have a good weekend. Yeah, bye. Bye. We're out. And by this time, it's been, what, two full weeks now? Two full weeks. And, and over Easter? So the jury has pretty much got their face kicked in, right? Yeah, this is a very intense week if you're a juror. And I don't know that anything would have changed your mind based on the, today's testimony. This is really like CNN wanted. They wanted this big controversial outcome, and it just didn't happen. It was just a boring, medically sterile day. It's a very dry, gross thing. But we're trying to make it hyped up because it's for history point of view, it's a really important dissection of what actually happens in this prosecution that's slightly different than you see in other prosecutions, which is they're relying on the medical examiner to target the police instead of relying on the medical examiner to protect the police. And that's why these questions are really interesting to us because the medical examiner said, I would have ruled it an overdose if he died in his house. And it's the exact same way that they would have ruled if there wasn't a camera there. Camera is what got Derek Chauvin in the place he's now, or, or at least moved the prosecution to attempt to prosecute Derek Chauvin. And this is why having body cams is really important. And as we say in all of our episodes, you can get active locally to make some really important decisions like get a medical examiner that's not a bootlicker and make the cops wear body cams so that you can see them murdering people and holding them accountable for it. For future episodes and to learn more about the worker movement, join us at workermovement.com.